glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Uh, I thought about this, this psalm, and, and I don't always think much or a lot about titles, but David is the penman of this psalm. He, of course, has been referred to as a man after God's own heart. I think that's in 1 Samuel 13. The Lord referred to David as a man after his own heart. And David's speaking here as a king who would rule a kingdom. And I hear this as a vision statement for how he will rule. You sometimes see a vision statement that a business will place out. And what you hear here is a, an overview of the principles by which David is going to rule, uh, not only in his own life, but in his kingdom. You hear that in the end of the psalm when he talks about his eyes are going to be upon the faithful of the land. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. There's a number of applications here. Number one is the practical application of King David telling how he's going to rule and reign in his land. How many of us know that David did not, and I don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but how many of us know he was not perfect in the execution of his vision statement? Wonderful vision statement, but he failed in his flesh at times to execute. And that brings us to the secondary application. It's prophetic. This psalm is prophetic of how the Lord Jesus is going to rule when he's on this earth. So Revelation 21.8 says, All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I've written in my margin here Revelation 21.8 and Revelation 22.15. These are the people that are explained in the end of Psalms, uh, this psalm that are not going to be welcome in the new Jerusalem, the holy city. The Lord Jesus will, will rule and reign uh, both on earth and then, of course, in new Jerusalem, in the holy city. None of these things that defile will be there. And so the values expressed in this psalm and the vision expressed is really the vision of the kingdom of the Lord. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of rule our Lord is looking for. But let's think of a third application to that, and that's how it applies to us practically. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You and I do not have kingdoms to rule tonight. I think we don't have to make that point. Um, we really can't rule as a monarch would rule, even we who are fathers. We don't rule as kings in our households. We rule as dads, not provoking to wrath. And, and uh, there's a, a, a limitation. All human authority in this period of time, of course, and all times will be limited, of course, by divine authority. But we're by no means any of us monarchs. Uh, the rule of a pastor in a church is that of a shepherd and an elder brother. It's not that of a monarch or a king. So it's a little difficult for us to understand this kind of authority that, that King David had and that the Lord Jesus will have. But let me ask you, where are we responsible for what takes place? Where do we judge? Where does the Bible tell us repeatedly we are responsible for making judgments and rulings? Ourselves. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And judgment is part of one that rules. Now, I understand we are judged of the Lord. We are ruled by the Lord. But we also understand one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance. The ability to make judgments and to, to align our lives according to those righteous judgments as directed by the Spirit of God through His Word. So our application tonight is we're not ruling a kingdom. And we're not going to be the king in the Lord's kingdom. We'll rule and reign with Him, no doubt. But the application for us tonight is the judgments we make concerning our own selves. First Corinthians 11, specifically, when telling us if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, has to do with examining our own selves, 
looking at our lives and aligning with the Word of God and the will of God. And so where we can rule, we are told in our mind, we are to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. What that tells me, you and I as Christians are responsible to rule in our thoughts, meaning we are supposed to reign in our thoughts. Paul said, uh, that he would keep under his own body, lest that when he had preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. The idea would be, by the Spirit of God's indwelling, we have been enabled to rule or to rule our own spirit. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And so through salvation, the new birth, we've been enabled to be a temperate people, a people who are now able to judge ourselves when the Lord Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. He went on to explain, here's what good judgment looks like. Judge yourself first. If you have a, a mote in your eye, you got, don't try to get the mote out of your brother's eye until you've taken the beam out of your own first. And so with that in mind, I want us to not look at this as, as how we will deal with other people but how we're going to deal with the things that, we, that David deals with in his kingdom that's under the realm of our rule and our responsibility the Lord has enabled us to be responsible people as Christians, and so that's the standpoint we want to come from tonight. We'll see four things that I believe come out of this psalm that we can see in David that should be a vision statement for us and one that we align with, uh, meaning we should have a clear perspective of this is, this is the way I'm going to live my life. This is the way a believer in the Lord and someone who loves the Lord should live their life. And so we're going to see these four things tonight in David that I think... Uh, serves a couple of purposes for us. Number one, it serves as a ruler or a pattern as David is in so much a type of Christ here and his rule and reign that we can understand this is what the Lord expects in our lives. It's his vision, if you would, for us as he rules us. We who are saved are already citizens in his kingdom. And so if we're going to align with the Lord. We have to have this same kind of mentality, same kind of purpose of heart and so forth. And so then we can learn that there's a pattern put forward in this psalm that we can use to measure ourselves against to say, is that where I'm at? Am I living according to my Lord, my King's vision for me? Is this vision my vision? Is this what I envision my life is to be lived like? Is this what is important to me? Are these my values and principles? So it's a, a pattern against to measure ourselves against. It also serves then not only as a pattern to measure against a rule, but an instruction as to how and where we need to correct some things and and, uh, and get some things uh, aligned in our lives. And, of course, if you're already here, then it serves as a strengthening of our conviction to continue and be steadfast living for the Lord as we are. The first thing I want us to see tonight, and as a, in a psalm, sometimes a little difficult to break it down in these logical sections that we might in other portions of Scripture because it's poetic. So there are thoughts woven through the psalm. First thing we see and want to bring to our attention is the interest that David had, his interest. And by that, what I mean is what was, what was he, what had his interest? What is he concerned about uh, as we read this psalm? I'll give you three things that I see and you can always find more. The outlines are certainly imperfect, but the word of God is not. So it's just to help us have some understanding of what we're reading. Now, the first thing I would see is he's interested in the Lord's perception. In verse 1, he says, I will sing of mercy and judgment Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Very interesting throughout Scripture that we not only sing to each other, we're to sing to one another, but we're to make melody in our hearts, according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. We're to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Tell me this. What is, just while we're on music here, it's first, the first verse is dealing with his singing and his music. 
What is normally the number one rule people use when selecting what they will sing and what they will listen to and what kind of music they're going to engage in? What's normally the, the, the rule for how we select our music? What's that? Personal preference. Yeah, it's personal preference. That's what I like. Um, and no doubt we have different personalities and different preferences, and God made us that way. A lot of that is fine. There's, there's a lot of that that we might like different styles of instruments, but when what is driving us, whether it's in our music or our conduct, is my own personal propensities, you know what we're really listening to? Our flesh. And the flesh is corrupt. How many of you have learned you cannot trust your instincts? I'm talking about your fleshly instincts. Your natural propensities, your natural appetites. My natural appetites can't be trusted. I I do not intend, I don't believe the Lord intends to give a message tonight on music, but I think it's interesting. He starts off, David is a musician. It's what he is. He's a king, but before he was ever a king, he was a musician. He played a harp. He taught others to skillfully play music. He instructed uh, and, and, and set aside priests for the specific purpose of music. And what music is, is an expression of someone's heart. That's why some people's music scares me. Because it's an expression of their heart. It is an expression many times of, uh, of what is inside. It's just expressed in song. And here David is concerned about what he's going to sing and to whom he's going to sing. And notice the content of what he's going to sing. He said, I will sing of mercy and judgment. Meaning there is a, there is a, a theme to what he was going to sing to the Lord. So I'm going to sing about two things. I'm going to sing of mercy and I'm going to sing of judgment. What you can hear here, but let me ask something. How many of us understand the Lord, the Lord is concerned and interested in those two subjects? Mercy and judgment. We won't take time to turn there, but you can read in Psalm 89, 14, that mercy and judgment are the inhabitants of God's throne. That's what his throne is all about, both judgment and mercy, mercy and truth. Uh, in Matthew 23, 23, the Lord Jesus said that you know, the Pharisees focusing on the minor issues of the law had overlooked weightier matters such as judgment and mercy and love and so forth. And so judgment and mercy, judgment being the ability to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, choose the good, reject the evil, to come to clear conclusions about what is true and right, and to make honest decisions in alignment with truth and justice. By the way, without judgment, there is no mercy. You can't. If if there's no judgment, if there's no absolute wrong, how can there be absolute punishment for that wrong? And how can there be forgiveness if there's not offense? And how can there be offense if there's not law and judgment? And so God is concerned about establishing what is true and right, convincing of truth, convincing of error, and then extending mercy to the repentant. God delights in forgiving people who've hurt him. Isn't that amazing? And David said, that's what I'm going to sing about. The content of my music is not going to be who I am, how I feel, what I want and what I think. And no, the content of my music are going to, is going to be that which I know is delightful to God. He is interested in what the Lord perceives. And he said, I'm going to sing to the Lord. Then he says in verse 2, I will behave myself in a perfect way. Oh, when will thou come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. The idea what you're getting is he's concerned with what God hears. He is concerned with what God sees. He said, I'm not just going to sing... I'm going to sing to the Lord. You know, I believe, I believe you could find David out in, the, in a pasture someplace 
singing his heart out to the Lord. Because his songs were directed heavenward before they were ever directed earthward. In fact, many of the Psalms, if you read, it's David, it's, it's him talking to God. That's what this Psalm is. It's him ex- expressing, it's almost like a prayer in song. And so he's interested in the Lord's perception. He's interested in the Lord's pleasure. Again, we're, we're noting that by what he says he's going to sing of. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. So, Lord, I'm singing for your ears. I'm living for your eyes. I'm going to sing about and talk about and do things that I know are pleasing to you. We remember that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, receive Glory and honor and praise, so on and so forth. For thy pleasure, uh, the, the things were created. All the things that are and were were created for his pleasure. I want to read First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Then we'll flip over and read Revelation 4.11 so we get it properly. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God so ye would abound more and more. Revelation again, Revelation 4, verse 11. Revelation 4, 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And if we get to this first point, and the conscience that God put in me is saying, you are not very concerned about what pleases the Lord. This is where this pattern goes to work. The best thing to do at that point is to say, that's true. That's true. How many of us know that if I'm not living my life concerned about what God sees and what it pleases God, that is an indictment on me. I think this group knows that tonight. There is something wrong with a person that's willing to receive the benefit of Calvary's cross. I'm willing and glad that you died for me. I'm more than happy to accept the benefit of your suffering. But after that, I don't really care what you think. I want to do what I want. If that's and I'm not I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know hearts tonight. But it is possible we get to this point and honesty grabs hold of us and says, I'm not living for what pleases him. I'm going to say this, and I say it with really out, without any question in my conscience. So much of the conflict that we see today between professing Christians about what is the right and wrong way for Christians to live is based in this problem, that most folk who claim to be saved are simply living to please themselves. And when we do that, when we do that, when, it, when at the end of the day, what all that matters to me is what I prefer rather than what he prefers. What pleases me rather than what pleases him. It's going to create conflict because how many of us all know different things please us? <laughs> but the Lord is one Lord and there are certain things that please him. And uh, we'll see some of those things here in just a moment. So David's interest is in what the Lord perceives. He is singing for the Lord's ears. He is walking in his house for the Lord's eyes. He understood the truth of Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 139, he writes in depth on where the eyes of God were and how he could be seen of the Lord no matter where he was. So we know that he is saying, 
I realize and am living for what pleases the Lord, knowing His ears are open to me, for what pleases the Lord, knowing His eyes are on me. When I sing, I'm going to sing to Him. When I sing, I'm going to sing to His ears. Mercy and judgment pleases the Lord. That's going to be the subject matter of my music. And uh, my, my walk in my house will be with a perfect heart, meaning I'm not just going to walk in public. I know a lot of people that claim to be Christians that have two sets of standards for their life. They have one set of governance for their conduct and their behavior when they're at church and another set of standards and conduct for when they're alone and a third set for when they're in public depending on who they're in public with. If they're in public with other Christians, they'll be more Christian. If they're in public with carnal people, they'll talk the carnal language. And if they're in public with the lost, they might just pretend they're not Christians at all. Now, David, he said, I'll walk within my house with a perfect heart. Meaning, I'm not going to have a divided heart, part of my heart wanting the world and part of my heart wanting man's approval and part of it wanting God's approval. His interest was in the Lord. He's singing to the Lord. He's walking. Only God sees the heart, but he says, I want what God sees to be complete. I want the Lord to know that he is not, I have not withheld any portion of my heart from him. I walk within my house with a perfect heart in a perfect way. We'll say more about that in a little bit. Uh, I walk within my house with a perfect heart. He's not only interested in the Lord's perception. He's interested in the Lord's pleasure. He's interested in the Lord's presence. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, I will behave myself in a perfect way. And what's the next thing he says? It's a question. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? It's almost like, I don't know, Lord, when you're going to show up, but I'm going to live in such a way that I'm right when you do. And we find that throughout the New Testament. We find throughout the New Testament, uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14, those verses we know so well. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and God in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who loved us, gave himself for us, that he might uh, purify himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That that text is we're going to live right because we are anticipating his return. We don't, oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I want to walk correctly within my house because you might show up at any time. His interest is in the Lord's presence. It's not what's coming next for me. It's I'm, I'm living, anticipating that the Lord could return. The Lord could come at any time. I find it so interesting that that's what's said all the way back here in the Psalms. And so then, his interest is in the Lord's perception, in the Lord's pre- uh, pleasure, and in the Lord's presence. Uh, a reminder of 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to read this again. We read it a couple of times on Sunday, but it's a good reminder for us. 2 Peter chapter 3. And by the way, if all these verses do is stir our conscience a little bit while we're sitting under the preaching and they don't result in activity in our life that, that aligns with this, it's, it's in vain. If we're doers of the word and not hearers of the word, not doers only, it's a vain thing. And so our, our, our understanding of the reality of the Lord's perception and the Lord's, that the Lord is a living person. He has certain things that are abominable to Him. He has certain things that are pleasing to Him. And what happens is, listen, the Lord is always conscious of us, but we are not always conscious of Him. We need to live conscious of the Lord's perception of our lives 100% of the time. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, we need to be realizing the Lord sees me. The Lord hears me. He perceives the motive of my heart. I want then my heart to be acceptable in His sight. That's what, that's what the David, that's what David prayed, is it not? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, he said, let the words of my mouth, Psalm 19, 14, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. It's no wonder God said this is a man after his own heart. David was not constantly saying, I have dreams, I have hopes, I have things I want to pursue. I hope God doesn't get in my way. <laughs> and very, very few people would say that, but many times that's where the heart is at. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him. O when wilt thou come unto me? Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So in Psalm 101, it's very easy to see David's interest is in the Lord, in what the Lord perceives and what pleases the Lord. And then when the Lord's going to come, the Lord's presence, living for the fact that the Lord could, uh, could visit him at any moment and he wants to live in light of that truth. Number two, we not only see his interest, we see his intentionality. Kind of a big word, but how many of you have noticed there's a theme in those first three or four verses? Two words linked together. I will. I will. How many know saying those two words can be presumptuous sin? James warns us, don't say I'm going to go into this city and buy and sell and trade and get gain. You don't know what's going to be on the morrow. But how many of us know that refusing to say I will can be a, a fruit of indecisiveness? Well, I'm going to try. You're going to read your Bible? Oh, I'll try. No, I will. You're going to spend time with God in prayer? I'll try. You're going to you know, fish? Oh, I will. <laughs> Isn't it funny what we try and what we will? <laughs> You're going to do this? You're going to, do, going to go to work tomorrow? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. You're going to obey God tomorrow? I'll hope. Where's the decisiveness? David was intentional in what he's saying. His vision statement wasn't half-hearted. It wasn't, maybe, I hope it all works out. May I say this? You'll never obey God on accident. You'll never live for Christ on accident. You'll never, I got news for you. You won't get saved on accident. You have to make a decision about what you're going to do with the truth of God when it's presented to you. You can't save yourself, but you don't get saved on accident. Well, I don't know how I got saved. One day God saved me. I didn't have anything to do with it. No, you must believe. You must believe what God tells you to be saved. Amen? And if once we're saved, it's not on you. It's on the grace of God. But you and I must respond to the grace of God by faith. We must... Faith... If I say I have faith and I don't make decisions on that faith, it's not faith. It's, 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 it's game playing. So it's intentionality. Notice what we find in verses uh, uh, 3 through 7. Uh, he is discerning. Notice how he makes a distinction. He's very discerning. He makes a distinction between wickedness and righteousness, between uh, perfection and, and frowardness. He says in verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. There were some things that David defined. They were very defined in his mind as wicked. This is wicked. This is righteous. This is evil. This is good. This whole idea of breaking down lines between good and evil, between wicked and righteous is of the devil. It's not of God. God is a God of light and makes distinction. Amen? 
Lying is wicked, being honest is righteous. Um, uh, adultery and fornication, uncleanness is wicked, and holiness and purity is good and righteous, and uh, working hard is, is, is righteous, and being slothful is wicked. We can go on, 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 on. Uh, covetousness is wicked. Content, contentment is righteous. We need to be definitive in our thinking. We need to be able to call sin, sin, and know that it is. We need to be able to know what is righteous. There needs to be definition in our mind. You see that in the psalmist. He is a man of discernment. Uh, Even when he himself had sinned, he called what he did wicked. It was sinful. He knew what he had done in the sight of God, and he owned it. My point is this. When we say, well, it's hard to know. No, the Word of God makes it clear. When When you go through Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, and it says... Put off the old man. It starts naming what we're to put off. Stealing and covetousness, which is idolatry and uncleanness and unfornication. All those things put off and put on the new man. God is teaching us to be a discerning people. And we're not, we're not, it is not our job to judge people, but it is our job to judge deeds, words, actions, attitudes. There's wicked and there's righteous. And so he's a discerning man. He said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. There are those that turn aside. That, that turning aside has to do with being froward or perverse or knowing the path of righteousness and intentionally getting off or even unintentionally turning away. I know this is right, but I'm not going to do it. I know this is the what I should do, but I'm not going to. I'm going to. The Bible in the New Testament calls it swerving. They've swerved and they've made shipwreck. Here, he says, I hate the work of those that turn aside, those that get away from what they know is right and true and good. No, I'm not going to let their deeds cleave to me. Then he says this in verse 5, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart, will I not suffer. What a judgmental guy. He's saying that being proud and haughty and having a high look and slandering is all bad. Right. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. You see how he discerns? These are the unfaithful. These are the faithful. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will utterly, I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, and I, uh, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. He was discerning. we we'll use a, a no-no word. He was discriminatory. He discriminated. Right, Shaylin? We talked about the word in her vocabulary today. She said, I've always thought the word discriminate was bad, but it means to draw a line between good and evil and make a choice. How about that? We don't discriminate against people because of their color or their gender. God doesn't do that, but we do discriminate against wickedness. Do we not? We're supposed to. The Bible says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment, meaning... Take what you see and know and line it up against the truth and make a discerning judgment about whether it's good or evil. We have to be able to do that. We have to be able to hear a doctrine and say, is that a good doctrine? Is that a, is that a bad doctrine? The only way to do that is to line it up against the Word of God, against the truth. Is that a sin or is that right and so forth? And so he was discerning, and because of discernment, he was discriminatory. He said, I don't want the wickedness of the wicked. I don't want to fellowship with the wicked. I've made some decisions about that. So his intentionality is he was discerning. 
he was discriminatory, and he was very clearly decisive. He said, I will sing of mercy and judgment. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within mine house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I will not know a wicked person, meaning he was not going to fellowship and commune with wicked people. We dealt with that last Thursday night. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I'm going to tell you where a lot of misery comes from. Indecision. Indecision is the root of so much misery for especially saved people. We're still trying to fellowship with people that have that have swerved, that have parted from the way. We're trying to figure out how to get along with people who are daily, intentionally disobeying God and how to get along with God at the same time, not realizing there are times when certain things, certain places we must say, I've got to cut that relationship off in order to stay right with God. Throughout the New Testament, do you realize there's a higher standard for fellowship with brethren than there is how to interact with the world? We're not to ever be in fellowship with the world. But Paul said, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator and a drunkard or an extortioner, meaning they are living in open, public, knowledgeable sin, and yet claiming to be a Christian, that the church was not to hold them in fellowship, not to continue to treat them like they're doing what's right. If a man would not work, neither should he eat, Second Thessalonians 3 says, and if he's a brother, don't company with him that he may be ashamed. You with me tonight? But what happens is we are indecisive ourselves. We've not decided yet... I'm just going to live for what pleases the Lord. I'm going to live for His perception. I'm going to live to be loyal to Him. And to be loyal to Him means I have to discern against what is wrong, be discriminating against what is wrong, uh, and hate that which is wrong. Not hate the people, but hate the wrong. And, there was, and then I will. I will sing to the Lord of mercy and judgment. I will behave myself wisely. I'm going to conduct myself in a wise way, in a perfect way. He says uh, he is very decisive. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I'm not going to put something in front of me that's going to allure me away from God. I'm not going to set myself up to turn aside from God. You know, we ought to be discerning. What is it that tempts me to get out of God's will? What is it that, that, that tries to steal my devotion from God? What is it that tempts me to love the world and not value the eternal? Whatever it is, then cut it off. It becomes an idol to us. David said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. He was, he was decisive. He had made up his mind. He was living for the Lord. The vision statement of a virtuous saint. And so then, he is, uh, he's decisive. He had made some I wills. I will not know a wicked person. Elisha said, Elijah, excuse me, Elijah said to the people of Israel, how long halt you between two opinions? Either serve the Lord or serve Baal, but you can't do both. And as Christians, friend, it's what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, no man that putteth his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom. We're not qualified to be disciples if we're constantly reconsidering the statement, I've decided to follow Jesus. Indecisive. There's a Bible word for that indecision. It's lukewarm. Amen. Double-mindedness. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Church, I'm, I'm preaching my heart to you tonight. This is, and it may have to do with where we are in the age of this church and even the demographic of who's sitting in our pews tonight. Young people, you cannot live all your life going back and forth Today I'm going to live for the Lord. Well, it's a little too challenging. No, you've got to make up your mind. 
Either you're going to follow the Lord, serve Him, or you're not. But you can't do both. One has to choose. Joshua challenged the children of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, the gods on the other side of the flood, or the gods of Egypt, and as for me and my house, we're going to try to serve the Lord. Did I misquote that verse? How many times do we say, I'm going to try to, and what we're saying is, I've not decided. You're going to live for the Lord? You're going to let Him run your life? Well, I hope so. No, then you won't. And I won't. That's just all. It doesn't matter. Put the name in there. It is, I will. That is not confidence in self. It's just a decision. I've chosen the path I'm going to take. I'm not still questioning, can he be trusted? Is he worthy of my trust? Is he worthy of my obedience? I have decided to follow Jesus. It's a decision. Peter was a, <laughs> was a um, an unstable follower, but you know what? He had decided. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and the Lord Jesus was the reason he decided. He was worthy of that. The point is tonight, David is not parsing words. He's not lukewarm. He's not trying to straddle a fence. I will. He's decisive. That's his intentionality. Number three, his integrity. You see his integrity in this psalm. By this, what we mean is he was not, he's not duplicitous, and it's not his goal. His goal is to be the same thing when only God sees him as when everyone else sees him. His devotion, we see his integrity in his devotion to perfection. Now, by this, I don't mean perfectionism. I don't mean that I've got to do everything just absolutely. We use the word perfect a little differently sometimes than the Bible does in its context. He says in verse 3, excuse me, verse 2, I will behave myself in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within mine house with a perfect heart. This idea of perfect means without reserve or without holding back. It means completion. Completion, meaning, let me put it this way. How many of you have ever been told by an authority, you didn't finish your task? You were given five things to do and you did four. That's not a perfect way. Perfect means completion. It doesn't mean everything was flawless. It doesn't mean there were no blemishes per se. It means I'm not leaving anything undone that I'm told to do. Uh, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And some some of the most subtle sin in the world is what I just won't do. How many of us know, how many of us know certain things? I know I should be taking time to pray over this, but I'm not. I know I should be memorizing some scripture and committing that to memory and meditating on it and using it in a practical way in my daily life, but I'm not. I know I should be endeavoring, I should witness to somebody, I should talk to another person about the Lord, gospel track, start a conversation, but but I'm not. Now, it'd be better, my point is this, we have a tendency to think, well, I know the Lord wants that in my life, but it's not a big issue. It's not a big deal. Anything that the Lord wants is a big deal. And what David says, I'm committed to integrity, I will walk within mine house in a perfect way. Uh, I will, I will, I will, let me read again, verse 2. I will behave myself in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within mine house with a perfect heart. Think about this, and we'll move on as quickly as we can. Um, let's say you have a child or children. They've been left at a house, and mom and dad say, now we come back with the living room tidied up, um, want all the towels in the bathroom thrown in front of the washing machine so we can be ready to wash them when we get home, and supper dishes cleaned up. And so as soon as supper's done, all the kids clean up the dishes, and they go tidy up the living room. 
and they get towels out of one of the bathrooms, but then they get distracted and say, ah, that's not the biggest deal, towels around the washing machine. When mom and dad walk in the door, what's going to be the first thing on that child's mind? The towels in the bathrooms that didn't get done. <laughs> if the parents are, are, are people of discipline, right? That's the first thing. Now, it wasn't a big deal until mom and dad showed up. And then the issue is not towels. The issue is negligence and slothfulness and disobedience. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? There were three men that were given talents. First man was given five. The second man was given two. And the third one was given one. And the last man, what did he do wrong with his talent? Did he go and spend it on booze? On sensual lust? What was it that he did with that thing? Yeah, he did nothing with it. And what did Jesus call him? You're a wicked and slothful servant. Is it that big of a deal just to not do anything with something? It is. It's a big deal. And I have to bring this up because I know my own flesh. I know my own tendency. It's easy to think, I didn't really do anything wrong. I just didn't give myself wholly to what I knew was right. You with me tonight? David was committed to integrity. Uh, He's devoted to perfection, meaning I'm not going to leave anything undone. Matthew 5.48 says... Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Don't leave things undone. We understand we're not going to have a sinless body until we get a new one. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul told the Corinthians, be perfect. Meaning don't leave things undone in regard to the will of God in your life. So his devotion to perfection, number two, his devotion to personal purity. Verse three, he says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside it shall not cleave to me. There, there is the work of them that turn aside all around us. It's all around us. You know whose responsibility it is to make sure it doesn't cleave to us? Us. The devil wants to make the filth of the world stick to our lives. What keeps the filth of the world from cleaving to us? The washing of the water of the word. How I many of you have noticed it's very difficult to have the word of God in front of you and something wicked at the same time? Yeah, David had a couple. He said, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I believe if we would just take this same purpose of heart that he had and say, I'm going to apply that to every screen I have, every piece of literature I have, if it's wicked. Now, look, the world sets wicked things in front of us, do they not? I can't help what the world sets in front of me, but I can help what I set in front of me. If it's wicked, let's don't set it in front of us. That'll keep us from letting the ways of the world cleave to us, those that turn aside. And not only the ways of the world. There are some people that are saved that have turned aside and they have some false doctrine and errant thinking and we don't need to let their ways cleave to us either. And so he's devoted to perfection. He's devoted to personal purity. Thirdly, he's devoted to probity or honesty. The, the whole last part of the psalm is this. He says, a froward heart shall depart from me. Meaning, he said, I'm not going to let the work of the turn aside cleave to me. When the froward heart starts getting in me, I'm going to put it far. From, I'm going to put it away from me. Get that? It's starting to cleave to me. They have a froward heart. This word froward means to turn aside. It, the idea of turning from with aversion or reluctance. Either I don't like the way of God or I don't know if that's the way I want to go. I'm just not sure. Not will, willing to yield or comply with what is required. That's frowardness, to be unyielding, ungovernable, refractory, disobedient, or peevish. 
I'm not willing. There are children at times that have to be disciplined over the same issue over and over and over and over and over. It's called frowardness. I'm unwilling to yield with what is required of me. I'm going to do it my way. David said, when I start getting that kind of a heart, I'm going to put it from me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. So he's devoted to probity and honesty. Verse 5, he said, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. That's a form of dishonesty, slandering a neighbor privately. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart, will not I suffer? Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful land, and that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. Now, what's our house? Talking about the physical structure we live in? This right here. You think about that. How much of what he's describing is the flesh? I'm talking about the nature of the flesh. It's every one of us. Our flesh is deceitful. Our flesh loves to privily slander a neighbor. David says, I'm not tolerating it. And I believe the application you and I is, is how are you and I going to respond to our wretched flesh? Are we going to put it off or are we going to tolerate some of it? The Bible says, put it off. Put off the old man with his deeds. Put it off. You know, David's saying, I don't tolerate my flesh. It's not going to dwell. My flesh is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Before you got saved, before I got saved, we were nothing but flesh. But now that we're saved, we have the capability to deal with liars that want to dwell in our house. That old lying nature mind should be told, no, I will not tolerate a liar in my house. You with me? This is our governance. It's where we live. It's what Paul meant when he said, I keep under my body. There are things my flesh wants, but in my spirit, by the power of God, I'm going to say no. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself. His integrity is he was devoted to honesty. And the, the, I've used the word probity, which is the idea of integrity and honesty. He says, verse 8, I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. The Bible talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 10 that we're to take vengeance when our obedience is fulfilled. We're to revenge disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. That's the only time I can think in the Bible that revenge is okay when we're taking revenge on disobedience in our lives. We cannot, hear me tonight, you and I cannot have a passive attitude about living for the Lord and succeed at doing it. We cannot be passive. Well, I hope I'm able. I hope it works. No, no, we're soldiers in a battle. And that starts with a battle with our own flesh, our own deceitful, defiling flesh. Amen? My flesh wants to set wicked things in front of me. The Spirit of God says, no. And so then we must have the attitude of David and say, it's not welcome in my house. <laughs> and so then uh, he, he uh, was devoted to personal purity and devoted to probity and honesty. By the way, are not our bodies the temple of the Holy Ghost? So this way he wants his, his house, this temple, governed. Finally, we see David's intolerance. We, we are in a very politically incorrect outline tonight. I've used discrimination and intolerance in a positive way. David was intolerant of some things. I've already, I've already hit on it. What he was devoted to, he was intolerant of everything that was opposite. So he's devoted to perfection. He is intolerant of frowardness. He was intolerant of that which defiled uh, verse 3, the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. He hated the work of them that turn aside. That's strong language, isn't it? 
Meaning, I'm not going to tolerate the sin of the world and the sin of my flesh in my life and for him in his kingdom. And so he was intolerant of that which was defiling. You and I must have the same way. We ought to have an, an hatred for sin. Let love be without dissimulation. Cleave to that which is good. And what's the next word? One of the strongest words in the English language. Abhor that which is evil. Let me ask you something. Is it possible to abhor that which is evil and be faithful of that without compromising love for people? May I say, and we've said this many times, you and I cannot love people without abhorring that which is evil. There is such the idea, here's what I find. In my own life, you know what I'm often willing to tolerate in somebody else's life? Meaning what I'll make excuses for in the life of another. That which I'm already good at making excuses for. You know how we get good at it? We excuse our own. Very often when I'm willing to overlook by way of sin, meaning I know what someone's doing is sin, but I'm going to explain it away and I'm going to justify it. Very often it's an indication of something, perhaps in a lesser level, that I've justified my own life. You and I need to be clear in judgment. By the way, the only way we can do this is by walking in the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the way to walk in the Spirit is to stay in His Word, submit to His Word, act in obedience on His Word. So David was intolerant of that which defiled. He was intolerant of disobedience. Verse 4, a froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Uh, so that froward heart, again, he said, I'm not, willing, I'm not willing to tolerate that. And, of course, he was then, of course, intolerant of deceit, verses 5 through 8. Again, verse 7, He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Uh, verse 8 again, I will destroy, early destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. How do we do this? How do we, how do we cut off the deceiver out of our house? And how do we early destroy the wicked of the land? How do we deal with our flesh? What is the implement by which we kill the fleshly nature? Effort, endeavor, the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know what will deal with your flesh and mine when you and I consider what Christ did on the cross? Let me say this. If you can think about what Christ did on the cross and it have absolutely no effect on your spirit, no effect on your will, something's broken. Something's out of order. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified. Who's he talking about? I thought. I mean, how can he write if he's crucified? Of course he's speaking of a, of, a, of a figurative language or a spiritual action that took place. He's talking about his flesh. His first nature was counted as dead. Romans 6, 1 through 14. Know you not that they which are, 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 are dead with him, uh, crucified with him, uh, buried with him. Uh, we're not going to live unto sin any longer. The whole context of Romans 6 is that the old man is crucified. We are dead indeed to sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not so mysterious. The idea is when I can get a hold of what my sin cost Jesus Christ, then it should change my attitude about that sin, shouldn't it? Instead of coddling it, instead of excusing it, instead of defending it, instead of perpetuating it, the cross is to cut it off. My deceit and my defilement and my, my frowardness killed him. And if I love him, I ought to hate what killed him because he loved me enough to die for it. I'll say it again. If the cross is not sufficient to deal with it, nothing is. 
It's only by the cross of Christ. And you can study so many different texts. Galatians uh, chapter 6, Galatians 5. Deal with this fact that it's by the cross that we we have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. You know how we fulfill this vision? This vision of a, of a virtuous saint by the cross of Jesus Christ. When we live a life that is dead to self, we do so. We do so through the love that God birthed in our heart through his cross. The love of Christ constraineth us. And it's by his cross that we die to sin. And it's by his cross that we are activated unto righteousness. Do you know what I encourage you to do? Say, boy, my desires are not where they ought to be. That vision statement's not where I'm at or... And whatever it may be, what I think we ought to do take a fresh look at the cross of Christ. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Shouldn't that not motivate us to love what he loves and hate what he hates and let him rule and reign in our lives as he should? And if this is not our vision statement tonight and we claim to be saved, boy, it sure should be. And if it is, if it is, how many of us can testify been my vision statement, but I, like David, have not been perfect in execution. That's where we need God to help us. To, it's not right that we should stay there, but that we should say, you know what, but that's the way a Christian ought to live. And that's the way we ought to live, with our interest on him, to please him, uh, intentionally doing so, being discerning and discriminating and de- decisive in our service to the Lord and our rejection of that which is displeasing to him, in integrity, being in, in his eyes, what is right in his sight, intolerant of that which is sinful and displeasing to him in our lives. And so I encourage you, think of Psalm 101 and then take time, consider the cross, look at at the New Testament application of that and ask the Lord, help me tonight. Have I like praying this, Lord, give me your desires for me. Give me your desires. Let your desires be my desires. Amen. I encourage you to do the same. Mm -hmm.